Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We want to look together this morning at the second of the passages that we spoke about last week. This chapter that's filled with confrontation between Jesus and the, the Pharisees ends with two final blows against the Pharisees. And they're loving blows. God's blows are always filled with love. There's never any blow that's delivered in this life that's not designed for our good. And so there are two blows against the Pharisees. And they're telling blows and they're strong blows. And they hit them square in the middle of the nose or in the middle of the jaw or the forehead, wherever you want to think. They hit them dead on. But they are loving words. They are true challenges. And if we listen to them and heed them, we will be rich and happy. Now, in some respects, I mean it literally with rich. Because the Bible says that whenever we give things up for the kingdom of God, God gives us a hundredfold what we gave up in this life. And in the kingdom to come, eternal life. And so God's promises do come true in this life, but we're not a church that says that we have to have money as evidence of God's goodness. We are a church that says, we are, that believes that the Bible says it's good to give up money for the kingdom of God. But my experience is that whatever we give up for God, he, he returns in, in greater measure than we ever considered it. So this passage, these passages are calling us to do things. Last week, we... We saw Jesus speak to the Pharisees and say, guys, you have to flee. You have to flee your sin. You can't sit and in your your pious and august personages hold yourself aloof and say, well, maybe I'll listen to you, Jesus. Just give me a sign. You have a sign inside you. And that sign is your knowledge of your wickedness. And so the only sign I give you is the sign of Jonah, which was the sign of a man who was absolutely convinced of the judgment of God and the mercy of God, the wrath of God and the love of God. He says, I give you the same sign as the people of Nineveh got from Jonah. The wrath of God. Remember, the the people of Nineveh, all they saw was Jonah. And that was a man convinced that God was good and that God was just. And God has given us in a greater way, a greater Jonah in Jesus. A man who didn't come out of the belly of the fish saying, okay, now I know. Jesus goes into the belly of the fish saying, I know. Jesus goes into the grave convinced of what Jonah was convinced of as he came out of the belly of the fish. And so he's much greater than Jonah, but he is a man who is walking, and as we're reading, he's walking towards Calvary. He's going towards the grave, and he's preaching as a man on fire with the knowledge of God. And he says, I give you this sign. And that sign should resonate. Every one of our hearts knows the wickedness of our lives. The Pharisees shouldn't need a sign to repent. Jesus has come preaching repentance. They should need no sign. They demand a sign. Well, give me a little more, Jesus, and I'll repent. And all they need is the knowledge that God is a God who judges and a God of mercy who will forgive. They need to know that, and they need to know their own hearts, the darkness within, and that's all they need, Jesus says. So now we move on from flee to fill. And actually, it's fill, but it's to fill yourself. It's to be filled, but it's a, it's a conscious, active pursuit. 
fill. Flee, fill, and next week obey. Next week, Jesus turns away from the Pharisees and he's speaking to his own family and to his followers. But again tonight, or today, Jesus is speaking to, to the Pharisees. So I want you to stand with me, Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Immediately following Jesus saying, I'm not going to give you a sign. You have all the sign you need. The sign that I give you is the sign of Jonah. Then he, he goes on, and it seems like it's flowing directly out of the same conversation, that there's no break, although there does seem to be somewhat of a break in logic, and I think we'll find that the, the logical break isn't as obvious or isn't as real as it seems as we look at it. But he goes on to say these things, verse 43. Remember, he's just said something greater than Solomon is here, and he's reminded them that the, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, had repented and had come to hear Solomon. He's saying, now I'm here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Then he says, now, this is the word of God, now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it pa passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied. Now, I want to say, the Greek that's there is a word that means empty. And in case of a house, it would mean unoccupied, but it's a word that is simply empty. It finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And I pray, Father, that you will speak through your word to us and through me, your servant. I pray, Father, that you will cause your word to have power. And as we look at it, Father, Paul prayed that his words would not come with mere words, but with power and with the spirit and conviction, and I join him in making that prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the middle of these three challenges. Flee, fill, obey. Flee, the flight of repentance. Filling, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of God, and it produces fruit. And then finally, obey the mark of the Christian next week. Flee, fill, obey. I was reminded by a friend, Randy, Randy, where are you? Randy Myers this week, that this, this passage echoes something that we saw way earlier in the book of Matthew. That the, uh, the great predecessor to Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, uh, in coming and preaching as he did as the precursor of Christ, as the one who led the way for Christ, who, who prepared the way, had a number of Pharisees come out to hear him as well. Just as these Pharisees are coming to hear Jesus, so they had come to hear John the Baptist before Jesus. They're doing the same thing with Jesus that they'd done with John the Baptist. And he reminded me, and we, we saw this over a year ago, that when they came to John the Baptist, John the Baptist looked at the Pharisees who came out to him in the wilderness as he was baptizing, and they said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come. You brood of vipers, who called you to repent? Which is fleeing the wrath to come. Who warned you? So he's acknowledging that they're fleeing. He says, you've come out to me. And he preached a baptism of repentance. They've come out to him. And he says, who warned you to do this? And then he goes on and he says, produce fruit in keeping 
with repentance, okay? He says, don't just come out here and do the public repentance act. Now, follow it up with the stuff that proves it, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In essence, what our passage says this morning, be filled. Do not think that it's enough simply to repent and say, I, I hate that sin. Jesus says, and our passage makes clear, that when you see a person, when you see a person who grows as a Christian immediately, hears the word of God, takes it in, grows and grows, and then seems to go, ooh, or just flatlines. Maybe not descending back into the previous life, but flatlines, like the two forms of soil that we're going to read about in the next chapter. He just tells a parable in the next chapter, just a few verses on. He tells a parable about a sower going out, and he sows, and some of the seed falls on the path, and birds gobble it up, and it's gone. Some fall on rocky ground. The seeds fall on rocky ground. Grows fast, but then it, it, it decays because it has no root. It just dies away. And uh, Jesus says those are the troubles and the worries of this world and the, and the temptations. And then he says, and then there's the seed that falls on weed-infested ground. And that weed-infested seed, the, the soil that's weed-infested, the seed comes up, but it never actually produces fruit. Then he says there's a seed on good ground. So if you look at that set of four soils, the path, the rocky ground, the weed-infested ground, and the good soil, the middle two never produce fruit. You understand? The, the one falls away quickly and goes right back. The other one seems to be there and alive and growing, but it just never produces fruit. And what Jesus is saying here is, by no means should you ever be satisfied to be fruitless. And so what happens, he says, is that when you clean yourself up by repentance, and when you cast the unclean spirits out of you, and I don't think he's thinking, speaking only metaphorically here, unclean spirits are at work in all of us all the time. They're, they surround us. They're, they're everywhere, and they're not as powerful as you or I want to think they are. Jesus says very clearly about Satan himself, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so these beings that surround us, and the Bible is clear, our fight is not with earthly things, but with principalities and powers. It's a spiritual warfare that we're engaging in. As we're living this life, and these things are around us, we have to fight them. We have to be aware that in fighting our sin, we're fighting demons. The Bible says that all the idols of the nations are demons. It's just everywhere we find the influence of Satan and his work going on, and the Bible very prosaically you know it's not fancy stuff it's not mumbo jumbo it's not exorcism it's just saying fight him resist him and he'll flee you need to fight it and so here he describes the process of repentance as casting out unclean spirits he says when the unclean spirit goes out of a man it passes through waterless places in other words the when the demons are cast out now I want you to remember this principle because it's an important principle and it may make remember to come back to it and I may not but spirits do not like to be what we call incorporeal, incorporeal, okay, incorporeal, which means to be without an in, a surrounding and enveloping body. That's why when Jesus cast the, the demons out of the man who had a legion, they said, 
don't send us into the abyss, please. You know, whatever you do, don't send us into the abyss. Look at those, over there, there are those, the, the swine. Send us into the swine. They would rather live in swine than be by themselves and in the ether. Am I making sense? They hate it. And so they're always seeking to be in you and influencing you and around you. Now, the irony is that as, as human beings, we often seek, and this is what I'm going to be preaching on, we often seek to be what the demons run from. We want to think that we're really not a body, that we're not what we do in the body, that we're above our body, that we're these, these fine and, and precious minds, and that our mind is precious and that we have a mind and, oh, shoot, I've got this body. But really the real me is not what I do, the things I think. It's my mind, and in my, my mind I am above these things. And the Bible has absolutely no time for that kind of nonsense. The demons themselves don't want to be without a body. Who do you think you are? That you can say, in my, in my inner being, I am glorious. I am a child of God. When your outer being is a mess. No can't do that so the spirits say I want I want a body they're going through arid places dry places seeking rest and they can't find it so this one spirit that's been cast out says look I may as well try back where I got kicked out of comes back looks inside sees that the place is nice and clean swept no cobwebs none of the crud that was there before all that stuff gone, and it says, whoa, it's clean, but it's not full. And it goes and it gets seven demons, each of them worse than the first, and they come, and the final stages of that individual is, the final stages is death, but it's worse than they began. And so there's been this, this tremendous, whoo, rise, glory, victory. And then just as there was the rise, there is this whoop, down, and it's defeat and death. Jesus is warning here, saying, don't think that you are just an empty vessel and that your mind is all that counts. What you think in your heart and your mind will give expression to itself through your, your tongue, your hands, your feet. And they are all part of you as much as your mind. Don't think that your mind is the only thing that you have to deal with. Make sure your body is producing fruit. Okay? Make sure your body is producing fruit. I'm going to do something and I, I hesitate to do it. Um, because when you do this you encourage it and I don't encourage it. I don't think you've ever heard me before speak critically of a sermon, have you? I don't do it, you know? If it's a bad sermon, the guy's trying, and he loves God, and maybe he can't express himself. If it's an evil sermon, okay, I, I move on. You know, you heal, you're here, you go to funerals. How many of you have been to a funeral in the last year where you heard what was really an evil sermon? Because it said doesn't matter we're all going to the same place I mean I hear those about once a year because I go to funerals and and I, I don't even want to think about evil sermons but I want to speak I've been at Presbytery for 
for many years. I'm no longer required to go to Presbyterian for that. I thank you because you made that decision and I'm glad. But one of the things that happens at Presbytery, which is the gathering of the churches if you're part of a denomination, is that you're ordaining people. And part of ordination means examining the young men who are coming for ordination. And one of the things that they're generally required to do is to preach a sermon to the Presbytery. That's because they may be actively preaching in a church, but none of the people have heard them except for those who are in their church, and these are pastors and several elders from 10 or 20 churches. And so they come together, and the man preaches. And sometimes it's always interesting to, to, to listen to sermons at Presbytery by pastors or guys who are going to be ordained. Sometimes you're pleasantly um, struck, and the word hits you. I can remember a few Presbytery meetings where a sermon was preached, and it hit me. You know, it was really a good sermon. I can remember... A number of sermons where I went, whoa, this man doesn't know how to preach. You know, he loves God, but it's, it was a terrible sequence of non sequiturs. You know, he just, and it was, and you think, whoa, how is this guy going to be a pastor? I, one of the, the cool things is that I remember a young man who gave what was easily probably the most inarticulate sermon I ever heard about 15 years ago at Presbytery and I didn't hear him for another 15 years he was still in the same church for 15 years and then he preached again and I'm telling you he had learned to preach he had become a preacher and his sermon was good and convicting and it was so those things happen you know and and it's something to remember as you listen to young men preach they're they're going to grow um Sometimes the sermons were, were bad theologically or bad in certain ways. But there was one sermon just a few years ago that was absolutely the worst sermon I think I've ever heard at Presbytery or anywhere. Because it was a sermon and I don't remember the passage and I wasn't there. I was listening on Zoom. So I wasn't there and I couldn't say anything about it. It's just lingered in my mind ever since. And it was a sermon by a very articulate and bright young man who was coming for ordination who kept saying how wonderful it is that we come to Jesus and we come to Jesus and I just remember him saying in his kind of sprightly way, you know, chipper, happy, we come to Jesus with empty hands, with empty hands. And he said it so often that by the end of listening to it in my car, I was up in the UP, and by the end of listening to it, I went, I want to punch you. You're wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. And of course his point was, we come to Jesus and he's all the good. But let me say there's a meta to it. You know, there's something underneath that you have to know. And that's that the guy loves, the, the man who did this sermon, had been around enough that I knew he loved to hear his own voice. He would speak and speak and speak in meetings. And always in that kind of sprightly voice. And forgive me, I, it may be a judgment, but it's the work of a pastor to, to look at people. And I, sometimes I look at you and I say, you know, I'm, I think you think you're a pretty good looking guy. It's one of the things that I have to fight myself. Vanity, right? I don't want to be a guy who's here to look good. It's one of the things I love about my brother. My brother was a good looking man when he was young and I don't know if he is today. <laughs> you know, one thing I do know is he doesn't care what he looks like. 
I love a man who just doesn't care what he looks like. My brother's never tried to lose weight. You know, he's going to be here preaching in a month. And you look at that belly and realize that's been there since he was about 35. And it never left him. And he has this scratchy, scruggly, struggling beard. Have you ever looked at my brother's beard up close, those of you who know him? It is weak. It's pathetic. And any man who, who had an ounce of vanity would shave it. But he keeps on going, and he's had that beard since he was 25. I love a guy who doesn't care about how he looks, because I'm not that guy. And I admire my brother. Well, this pastor who was preaching the sermon is more like me than my brother. And he kept on saying, we come to God with empty hands, with empty hands. But I kept on hearing him in my mind say, and that's enough because my hands are precious and my mind is good. And I'm, I may be wrong, but I'm convinced there was some of that in that. Look at me. I'm coming to you, God, with empty hands. The truth is, none of us come to God in a way that pleases him with empty hands. None of us. When we come to God in the beginning, we come with our hands weighed down with the absolute garbage of our sin, right? And we're offering God our sin and saying, God, take my sin. We're not empty-handed, and our hands aren't clean and nice. They're filthy, and we're saying to God, take it. And what happens? Well, if God is gracious, and he is gracious to those who come to him with their sin, God says, I'll take those. And what does he give in our hands? He puts his Holy Spirit in our hands. And he says, now, now, I've washed you. I've cleaned you. I've given you my Holy Spirit. Go out and bear fruit and bring back fruit to me. Bring back fruit. And what we have here in our passage is the warning that many of us are going to think that all God wants is for us to say nice things about him and not to fill our lives with fruit for him. You understand? And this is a threat and a danger in our day, let me say to you. And it is the reason why we so often see people come in and be gloriously up and then just as terribly down. And a year and a half later, the sins that they came in offering to God are the sins that they're back in. And it's because we have said, all that matters is what I think. All that matters is my heart and my mind. And we have deprecated and said, ah, the body, the fruit, no. And we live in a day that is above all a day that hates fruit. And so what God wants from you is not a precious man or a precious woman, not a pretty man or a pretty woman. What God wants from you is a man or a woman who produces fruit. And if you have been, been accepted by God as his child, then emptiness is not a good thing, right? Emptiness is a biblical Terrible thing. To be empty like this house is terrible. Ruth went out full and she comes back and says, I'm empty. I'm coming back empty. Do you know how many times the Bible says don't come to God empty handed? 
or that someone was sent away empty-handed by God or by someone else, it's always a terrible thing to be empty-handed. We don't brag and say, God, I come to you with empty hands. (laughs) It's not a biblical brag. It's wrong. We can't do that. Emptiness is awful. It's where the demons are. It's where they long to escape. It is a terrible thing to be empty, empty, empty. And so as you work in your life to fight sin and to know God, I want to say to you that the goal is not to be empty. It's not to be empty. It's to be full. Recently, I was asked by someone about, and I've mentioned this just a few weeks ago, about the existence, find you a program that would help people fight addiction. It was a particular type of addiction. It was drug, alcohol related, not sexual. And I, I thought to myself, well, yeah, I know, you know, I've known people. I've known 10-step programs outside the church. I've known them inside the church. I've known lots of programs and lots of ways to help people. But what I've never known is someone who keeps in the program who doesn't at some point fail and fall back. And you're going to tell me you know your, your father went to 10-step, you know, AA and never fell back. But the point I'm making is that in the end, if our focus is on defeating sin and defeating sin and defeating sin and it becomes our lifelong preoccupation, our, our, our lifelong challenge to defeat a sin, then all we do is live in the presence of that sin for the rest of our lives and it's gotten us whether we fall back into it or not. Am I making sense? You know? And so I look at people who spend their whole lives fighting porn, and I go, whoa, man, I don't want to spend my whole life fighting porn. I want to do something beyond that. I don't want to spend my whole life. I praise God that I didn't go into an AA program to quit drinking. God just gave me a day and then another day, and I started saying, God, help me. Let's string these days together. And by the end, you know, I'm not describing myself as a former alcoholic, well, maybe as a former, you know, but it's nothing to me now. It's gone. I'm not thinking about myself in terms of alcoholism. I don't want to. The power of God is greater than that. If my whole life is spent just achieving victory over alcohol, then I've done a very little thing because some people have done that from birth and didn't even have to fight. I want to do more than that, don't you? I want to do more than fight porn. I want to do more than fight alcohol. I want to do more than fight drugs. I want to produce fruit for God. And that's a very different thing than focusing on my sin. And even if we cast that sin out, if it's our focus, we're in trouble. And if we cast it out and we don't focus on anything else, but we just are sort of tabula rasa, means a blank slate, and we say, oh, look at me, I'm clean, I'm nice, I'm a blank slate, that's in the past. Well, we're just ready for Satan to come right back in and do a worse worse number on us than he did in the first place. That's what Jesus is warning here. I have a friend who is a normal heterosexual man, but for the first 15 years of his adulthood, he was not a normal heterosexual man, he was a gay man. And he was fighting being gay, 
And he wanted to put it behind, at some point, not immediately. I mean, initially he wanted to be gay. But at some point he wanted to, to fight it. And he fought it. And you know what is the clearest sign of all that this man is no longer fighting that sin, but he's moved on? He was a good-looking guy. And, uh, and now this man who defeated sin, well, he's married. He has a number of kids. He's working as an administrator at a school, and he's chubby. He's just normal, you know? He's not trying to be something. He is something. And when you see him put on weight and stop trying to look like something, but actually raising kids, loving a wife, doing these things that are the routine path of fruitfulness, you say, okay, you know, clearly that thing is in the past. It's not him anymore. And God's being glorified. This is something we need to hear because this is a day that hates fruitfulness and loves the appearance of fruitfulness. So the great desire in our day is to look like we're eternally on the verge of just bursting forth with fruit, but never actually bearing fruit. What do I mean? Well, I mean, I look at women like, every time I use a pop star in, in a sermon, my kids give me grief for six months, all right? So forgive me if I'm massacring this, okay? But I look at uh, someone like um, Jennifer Lopez, right? J-Lo? Isn't that what she's called? Okay. And, uh, and I say, now how old is J-Lo? And she was around when I was young. Right? How old is she? 50s? 51, but... What does she look like? In that revolting, I swear off of Super Bowls forever because of the last one. <laughs> she was dancing like a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old, right? Isn't it the goal of many women to look like they're 18 and bursting with vitality and fecundity and fruitfulness until the day they die? And then to die never having borne fruit. Because what happens when you bear fruit? Well, you start looking like you've borne fruit. And so we don't want to actually bear fruit. We want to adopt our kids. We want to do this or that and the other. But we don't actually want to wear out this body and make it look old and battered by being fruitful. Right? And so we have, we've made a great thing of the appearance of fruitfulness. But we really don't like the reality of fruitfulness. This is true of men as well. Men who look in the mirror day after day and grow their arms and their upper chest and so forth. And they look like they could take on Godzilla, right? But they'll never fight Godzilla because this is for show. And the guys who fight are actually out there fighting and they usually look like an NFL lineman, right? Who doesn't look chiseled but just looks like strong. And so gayness is in all of us, this desire to look like something without bearing fruit. It's part of all of our lives. We want to look the part, but we don't want to pay the price, right? 
And we are in an age that hates fruitfulness. So you get mocked if you have a lot of kids. And you're, you're told by the people on the internet that you should look like one of these insane women who has a baby and a week later is taking pictures of herself in her bathing suit to show how little it affected her. You know? And the whole idea is to, to not bear fruit. Or if you bear fruit, look like you never bore fruit and to not pay the price of it. I was reading the Bible yesterday and I came across this funny statement in the middle of the book of Exodus where God says to the people, in the midst of regulations, and it comes out of nowhere, do not take a young goat, do not take a kid. You know the passage I'm talking about? Do not take a kid, a, a young goat, and boil it in its mother's milk. You know that passage? Have you seen it? You understand what that passage is about, don't you? You understand that God is saying that the mother's milk is given by God to nourish a baby. And it is an obscenity to God to take that mother's milk and to boil the baby in it so that the baby dies where it should be being nourished. Now, God isn't saying you can't eat the young baby. So just don't do it in the mother's milk. It's wrong. What do you think God thinks about the womb being the foremost execution chamber in our nation? If he won't let you boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, what wrath is in store for those who have turned the womb into a chamber of horrors? But we hate fruitfulness. We hate it. We like being pristine and precious and saying, my mind, my mind, it's there in the heavens. Too bad about this body, but man, I love you, God. You're great. So how do we respond to this age and to this desire in us to be fruitless? Well, we, we start honoring fruitfulness. As a church, as a church, we need to say to those mothers who are bearing children, God is honored. God is honored. This is glory. To husbands who are just doing the simple work of keeping a family going, training kids, we say, wow, you don't need to be the president of an organization to have honor here. We honor you. We honor you. We don't give honor as the world gives honor. We look out at people who are bearing fruit and we say, we honor you. Right? We honor young women in this church. I'm so blown away and proud of our young women who are saying, yeah, I'm willing to get married. And our young men, I'm willing to get married and to have children. I know it's hard and the whole world is saying, go on to bigger things. There is no bigger thing than raising children. We honor those of you who put your money. It's not just bearing children. There's other ways as well. I remember a few years ago, 
couple in the church, Matt and Sarah French, had just gotten a new house. It was a nice house. It had been built and occupied by people who, who treated a nice house in a nice way. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> when I was growing up, there were houses that you'd go into and they'd have clear plastic everywhere. How many of you remember that? A few of you. Clear plastic, clear plastic on the sofas, clear plastic runners on the carpet. You never touched virgin material in those houses. All you ever got to do was sit on plastic, walk on plastic, and they were showpieces and there was no fruit in them. Well, today there are those houses, they're not with plastic, but everything is perfect. Everything is in its place. And that kind of house was sort of what the house that the French has bought, but then they started having the college group meet there week after week. And I remember about a year into the college group meeting at the French's house, coming over and visiting them and saying, ooh, ha, that floor was nice. What happened? Uh, oh, I don't want to ask. I know what happened. <laughs> the college group came. <laughs> we love you when you put your house to the service of God. You know that the best houses and the most fruitful houses are never the prettiest houses, Right? They're the houses that get worn out, just like the bodies, just like the bank accounts, worn out. So we honor, we honor those who bear fruit, and we don't give an inch to the lifestyle or the thinking that says it's nice to have this elevated mind and empty hands. No. We come with full hands. We would never want to go before God with empty hands. But then as well, I think we have to close with an exhortation, which is that though I say I honor you for bearing children, for using your home, for looking out for others, for using your life to bear fruit, I don't want to say that you're worthy because of that, because you're not and I'm not. The Bible says to us that when a master comes home and wants dinner and the slaves work to prepare the dinner, does the master say to the slaves, hey, you know, let me sit and wait on you? It doesn't. The slaves wait on the master. Jesus tells this story. It's a parable. And he says, at the end of it, he says, you know, the master gets served. And then he says to his disciples, so you too, when you do all things which are commanded you, you should say, ah, we are unworthy slaves we have only done that which we ought to have done. Don't think highly of yourself. Think of this glorious Savior who is, as we read and as he speaks in our passage, marching to Calvary for you and making you able to bear fruit and honor him. Honor him by throwing your life away for him. Honor this Savior honor him. I'm nothing. I'm just an unworthy servant. Doesn't matter what I look like. Doesn't matter how big my belly gets. I'm an unworthy servant and all I have is for God, right? Is this you? All I have is for God. I'm just an unworthy servant. So though I honor you, and though I am grateful to God for being in a church which is fruitful, we're nothing. We're nothing. We're nothing. Jesus is absolutely everything. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the glory of Jesus and the way that he gave his life so that we may be fruitful.
Fill our lives with fruit, we pray. Make us fruitful. Make us to hate the emptiness of our age. Father, I pray that you will make us fruitful and that we will honor you by our fruitfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.